What does a spiritual person look like? I, I suspect each one of us has um, a perception in our minds of what a, a person who's filled with the Spirit looks like, acts like, engages with the world like. And I just want you to allow that to come into your mind right now, a picture. What is a spiritual person like? Now, some of this may relate in some way to what you think Jesus was like. I, I remember Morris Gleiser when he was here giving a picture that I've never forgotten. He said, some of us think that Jesus went around everywhere with a dinner plate hanging over his head. Do you remember that? Like those icon, icon, iconography, just this nice halo over his head, like a dinner plate right behind him. And, and we kind of have this picture of a truly, a truly holy person, a, a truly spiritual person, is that kind of person who has an iron plate for a spine or an iron bar for a spine. He is always kind of like this. And he's got a dinner plate uh, hanging over the back of his head. And, and this is everything about who he is. Well, of course, we know that's not who Jesus was. Jesus got criticized, if anything, for spending too much time with the wrong kind of people. He was anything but stuck up. He was anything but haughty. He was anything but, if you will, too good for the misfits that he was continually finding himself showing compassion to, and ministering to. But nonetheless, the question we should always ask ourselves, in part, so that we understand what it's going to look for, like for ourselves, is what does a spiritual person look like? What, what does it look like when someone is filled with the Spirit? And we have an opportunity tonight, and over the next several weeks, to look at one character sketch of someone who was filled with the Spirit. I'm speaking of Stephen. Stephen's name, a Greek name, Stephanus, means crowned. The idea is there's a related Greek word that literally is the victor's crown that Paul speaks of. A wreath that was given to the Olympic uh, uh, games or the, perhaps the Isthmian games the champion of the time, crowned. And Stephen in Scripture is wonderfully crowned with a title, or perhaps less a title and more a description. Do you see verse 5 here of Acts chapter 6? It says that the multitude chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Now, as I said this morning, I don't know about you, but I would love it for any description of me to read Peter, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have this description of him, so my question for you is, what's this guy like? How would we see ourselves in a man who's full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit? And how would we see ourselves not like him? Over the next three weeks, God willing, tonight and for the next two weeks, we're going to work through Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7 to get a more in-depth character profile of a man who was full of faith 
and a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. Tonight, what we're going to look at is that Stephen was faithful. Next week, God willing, we'll look at the fact that Stephen was forceful, in a very unique way. And the week after, God willing, we'll look at the fact that Stephen was fruitful. You know, these three things characterize Stephen. A man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit who was faithful, who was forceful in all the right ways, and who was fruitful. And here's what I'm going to do tonight. We're going to look at the first seven verses to look at the fact that Stephen was faithful. The title of the message tonight is Stephen the Faithful. And what I want us to notice tonight is that this man who was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit was a man who was characteristically practical. Now, don't miss that. It's easy to think of a kind of faithful and, more importantly, spiritual man as kind of floating above the ground, feet hardly touching the ground, not concerning uh, with themselves with all of the difficulties and duties of everyday life. There's a phrase we use of that kind of person. You're so heavenly minded, you ain't no earthly good. You're so heavenly minded, you ain't no earthly good. And I bet all of us in our own ways have come across people that maybe could be described in a similar way. And yet what I want to see tonight is not Stephen. Oh, don't get me wrong. Stephen was an incredibly heavenly-minded man. But do you know the reality of him? Is that that made him of extreme earthly good. <laughs> Not, ain't no earthly good. What we're going to do as we just walk through these seven verses of Acts chapter 6, I'd like us to see this come out in Stephen's own unique way. First of all, what we're going to talk about is some problem solving that was needed at this particular time in history in the early church. Secondly, we're going to look at the priorities of their selection. And third, we're going to look at Stephen's practical spirituality. Let's start, first of all, with the problem that needed to be solved. Will you start with me in verse 1? And in those days. And in those days. Now, what are those days? Well, if you went back into chapter 5, you would see something very unique. One of the stories we probably identify most with the book of Acts, a man named Annas, a woman named Sapphira. People, a husband and wife who lied to the Holy Spirit and to the congregation of those that were there when they brought in the price of land that they had sold and donated it at the apostles' feet. Here was the problem. They were representing tacitly that they had sold the land and they were giving the entire price, but they were not. They were holding back part of the price. And so as their selfishness had touched them, they ultimately were liars. They were defrauding. They were deceptive. And here, the judgment of God falls upon them, and both of them fall down dead at various points in the day. And we see then through the rest of Acts chapter 5 this explosive growth of the church. Their holiness and their purity and their spirituality was like a magnet in drawing people in to the kingdom of God. And we see the persecution that arose as a result of that 
rapid growth from the religious authorities. And so we see here in verse 1, and in those days, when the number of the disciples were multiplied. So we've just talked about that multiplied growth. There arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now what is going on here? Well, let's step back for a little bit of context. The preacher has said this, and it's very wise. The devil loves to attack the church in three ways. One, he loves to do it by persecution. Direct, open, frontal assault against the cause of Christ. Do you know another way he loves to attack the church? By the carnality and the hypocrisy of its members. Bringing out, like Ananias and Sapphira, bringing out those who are not living up to the standard set forth in the word of God and seeking to sow a kind of carnality, a leaven that leavens the whole lump. The third way he loves to attack the church is by disunity, bickering, fighting, complaining. And how often we know, even from personal experience, the role that this can play in breaking apart and splintering gospel movements. Persecution, frontal assault, the death from within of carnality and hypocrisy in the church, and then the squabbling on all sides. Well, notice the, front, the assault here in chapter 6. There is disunity that is creeping into the church. And what is going on? Well, we see here there was a murmuring. Now, I will never forget the description of this word that is used here, murmuring. How many of you remember Jeremy Ray, our intern several years ago? Ben will never forget. Uh, ben will never forget our good friend Jeremy Ray. When he was here, I still remember a busing charge that he gave that talked about murmuring. Now, murmuring is an onomatopoetic word. You know what onomatopoeia is? Onomatopoeia means a word that sounds like it means. Gurgle. That's an onomatopoetic word. Gurgle, gurgle, gurgle. That sounds like what water does when it's gurgling. And murmur is the same way. Murmur, murmur. The, the idea is that you're complaining about something, someone, but you're kind of doing it behind your hand. You're kind of whispering. You're not frontally complaining like, I can't believe this, and you're going straight to... No, it's, it's kind of, hey, <clears throat> murmur. That's, that's the idea here. And, and the Greek word that is used here is gugosmos. Gugosmos. And I still remember Jeremy Ray telling us that to his mind, to his ear, this just sounded like goose droppings. And so he just, that's how he remembered that word, because that's really what it was. It was, it was like goose droppings um, all, all over the place. So never, you'll never forget that now either, will you? That's the Greek word for murmuring. And so this is the idea, murmuring. The murmuring comes up, and what's the cause? Notice that it's a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. What is this? The Grecians, this refers seemingly to the Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews. You say, what are Hellenistic Jews? Hellenistic Jews were Jews that likely grew up or lived, had lived outside of Jerusalem and therefore became familiar with and grew up in Greek culture. Not Jewish culture, like the strict religious pharisaical culture, 
that we would have seen in Jerusalem of the day, but a more lax, a more permissive, a more worldly-friendly, a more secular culture, but they were still Jews. And now they have come back to Jerusalem, they are living in Jerusalem, they are confessing Jesus Christ, but they are more Greek in their culture. They are not the strict kind of Jews. Now, the murmuring is against the Hebrews. This seems to be people who wouldn't have spoken Greek, like the Hellenists. They would have spoken Aramaic. They would have been more customarily Jewish, culturally Jewish. And so you have a natural division right here. People who are more Greek, the way they lived. People who were more Jewish, the way they lived. They were all Jews, and yet they did not follow the same kinds of of practices, cultural practices. So there's this disunity that is already natural, that is endemic to them, but now there's a unique problem. Their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now what is this daily ministration? It's a daily, literally a daily distribution. There seems to have been a daily distribution of food, perhaps a daily distribution of money. Now think about that, friends. Think about that. What was the early church doing? It was distributing necessities daily to people. The church was. What would that look like if, if we or another church here in this city were to be daily distributing necessities, economic necessities to those who were in need? Well, you see, that's what the church was doing. But the, the, the Greek Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, are looking at the Hebrew Jews, the Aramaic-speaking Jews, and saying, we're not getting our fair share. Our widows are getting neglected. They're not getting what they need. Now, was this an intentional problem? Probably not. It was just probably people slipping through the cracks, but who knows? There may have been some kind of discrimination that was more systemic. We just don't know. All we know is that the Grecians were feeling left out. One segment of the church was saying, we're not getting what we need, and they were murmuring. They were grumbling about this. And so notice now what the apostles do. Look at verse 2. Then the twelve, who are the twelve? Eleven of Jesus' original disciples, plus the one they added to replace Judas Iscariot in chapter 1. These are the apostles. The twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, the whole church congregation, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The word serve here, serve tables, is connected to the word from which we get deacon. They're literally saying, it is not right that we should leave the service of the word of God and deacon at tables. They're not being servers. That's not, that's not our, our, our job here. Now, don't think for a second that the elders, the apostles were saying, we're above that. That's too menial a task for us. No, they simply knew what every church leader must know, that the primary function of the local church is to preach and teach the Word of God. That's what they knew. They knew that above all things, they could not let this important task, truly important task, but subordinate task, re remove them from the fundamental task they had of teaching and preaching the Word of God. Well, you say, what was their dilemma? Well, clearly the fact that they're responding to the congregation suggests that maybe people were coming up to them and saying, hey, apostles, are you going to do anything about this? Are you going to fix the problem? Are you going to deal with these Hellenistic Jews who are feeling abandoned, neglected? 
Are you going to care for the widows? And so what do they do? Notice they say, Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And we have taken this even at our church as recognizing the need for our board of elders to be involved centrally in prayer and in teaching the word of God, the ministry, the service of the word to you. Now, notice here really what's going on. What is the direction that they give? They say, you look out among you seven men. Now, people have tried to make this passage serve ecclesiology, the study of church, the study of the governance of the church, church polity. And you can see two things going on here, wise, wise things. First of all, the authority is in the apostles. This supports those of us who have an elder form of government, that the one who had the authority ultimately to appoint people for service in the local church were the leadership of the church, the apostles. And yet there's a congregational involvement as well. The church leaders say to the people, you look out the people. You select ones that you can bring before us. We see, in fact, both of them, which I think are components of wise church governance. There is a leadership of the elders who have been appointed. There is the participation and approval of the congregation as well. This is the problem solving that is going on. And this is the context in which Stephen first gets identified. Stephen first comes on the scene to us. But notice secondly what I'm going to call the priorities of their selection. The priorities that the people of the local church, the congregation, was to identify. Notice the first one. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report. The first thing that these men needed to do concerned their standing. Their standing. This is sometimes a challenging thing for some of us to think about. But do you know that God puts it on you in some way to control how others think of you? I, I don't mean the kind of person who goes around in bondage to the way other people think, slaves to public opinion. What I mean is that Scripture recognizes that you and I have something that we can control about the way we are viewed by others. This is the reason why, again, one of the, one of the priorities, the very first thing that these apostles say to the congregation is, this person must be of honest report. Do you know what that word uh, uh, derives from to us in English today? Martyr. Martyr. They must have a good testimony. That's what the word martyr means, a testimony. And here it's in the passive voice. So they must have the testimony. They're not giving the testimony. They have a certain testimony, a certain reputation about them. A good name, Proverbs says, is rather to be chosen than great riches. Now, if you're still kicking back against that, if you're still pushing back against that idea, you need to take it up with the Apostle Paul. Because he is the one who says in 1 Timothy 3 that one of the, the non-negotiable characteristics of a deacon, of an elder, of a pastor, is that he must have a good report of them who? Them that are without. 
He's not talking about the people in the church. He's talking about your reputation in the community. He's saying you can't have a pastor in the church who's got a terrible reputation for honesty in the community. You can't have a pastor of your church who has a terrible reputation for laziness in your community. You can't have a pastor who has a terrible reputation for being unchristlike in his speech or in the way and the kindness with which he treats people or the meekness that he has, the humility in which he lives his life. He must, Paul says, he must have a good report of them that are without. And God give us grace to recognize the difference between slavishly pursuing being liked, slavishly pursuing the opinions of men and trying to please them in everything we do, and the other true biblical idea that we are to strive to be people of good report, that we are to strive in our workplaces and in our schools and our neighborhoods to have a reputation that is above reproach, to be blameless people in the way we live. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3, if you're going to get persecuted, make sure it's for being a Christian. Make sure that it's for being good and doing good. Make sure that it's not for any other reason. You see, may we, when we suffer, truly be people who are suffering despite our reputation for godliness and righteousness, not because of our reputation for something else. There was something here about Stephen that was a reflection of the, of the character that he had. And I just want to comment on one thing for just a moment. This connects to his integrity. He must be a person of good report. He must be utterly above reproach. Do you know what integrity is? Your reputation is what others think you to be. Your character is what God knows you to be. And that's closely connected to your integrity. Kids, do you know what integrity is? Integrity is the way you act when no one else is around. Or, or we might say it another way, a more truthful way. Integrity is the way you act when only God sees. That's what integrity is. Your virtues, your, your, your spiritual character is truly determined not when you are being watched by those who will look down on you if you act in a particular way. Your true spiritual character is revealed when only God is watching and when you are by yourself. And all of us should ask ourselves, what is my testimony of character when only God is watching, when no one else is holding me to account? What is, in short, my integrity? Stephen was a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, who is a man above reproach. But do you notice also the second characteristic? They must be full of the Holy Ghost. Full of the Holy Ghost. Full of the Holy Spirit. Do you notice here that he is speaking of what I'm going to call spiritual vitality? The apostles were assuming that the congregation would be able to tell who was full of the Holy Spirit. Like, you, you know the people who are full of the Holy Spirit, right? Friends, what would people say about how obvious it is whether you're full of the Holy Spirit? Could that be a characteristic that people around you would say, oh, you want someone who's full of the Holy Spirit? Oh, this person over there. You say, well, how would I know that? Well, we can start with what Paul says is the fruit of the Spirit. Love. Joy. 
peace and go down the list. How often do those things reflect my life? Are those the evidences that are going to be noticed by the people around me because I always seem to be content? I always seem to be able to live in love toward other people. I, I, I seem to have a peace that others can't explain. No, I'm not asking whether you're perfect. I'm asking whether our lives demonstrate what the apostles felt like would be obvious. Yeah, someone full of the Spirit. Notice this idea of spiritual vitality was something that Stephen clearly showed in his life. He was someone who was seen by others of being full of the Spirit. But do you notice what the last one is? Not only was he of honest report, not only was he full of the Holy Spirit, he was also full of wisdom. This goes back to what we've talked about with being practical. He was a person who knew what to do and how to do it. You say, why do you connect that to being practical? Because look what comes next. Not only full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, but whom we may appoint over this business. What business? Organizing. Administrating. Figuring out how to make sure that widows were getting the food they needed every day. You know what you need for that? Some wisdom. Some practical sense about how to organize and administer a program that now perhaps was reaching thousands of people. There is something practical about this man, about his skill, his wisdom, and his ability to be over the administration of this complex concern. Do you see here there's problem to be solved? There was a priorities of selection. But then finally what I want to look at is Stephen's practical spirituality. Notice what it said here in verse 4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. These seven will take it on. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. I won't go ahead and try to read the other names. We'll let Calvin Todd's reading stand on the record for tonight. I could do it, of course, but he did such a great job. We'll just, uh, we'll just allow him to take that one on. We'll skip ahead to verse 6. Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Now, I want to do just a, really a couple things here. I want to tie Stephen being full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit to the job that he was appointed to do. We've seen that he was a man of honest report. He had a reputation that was blameless. He was full of the Holy Spirit, full of spiritual vitality that, that was obvious to those around him. He was full of wisdom in being able to take the lead, to organize, to administer. But I want us to look at a couple aspects of this job that must have been very challenging. The first area where Stephen's practical spirituality showed was in the fact that his job was menial. And what I mean by that, it was, it was low. It was challenging. It, it wasn't prestigious. It wasn't important in the world's eyes. Here's what I mean by that. This is what he was doing. He was overseeing the food line it was making sure the food kitchen, the soup kitchen, was running on time. 
Do you remember what the apostle said? It's not reason that we should leave the word of God and do what? Serve tables. In other words, what was Stephen's job? Serve tables. That's what his job was. That's what he was called to do. Now, not only was it, is it menial just in its tasks, it was menial in, in who he was called to serve. He was called to serve the widows. And I don't mean this in any derogatory way. I mean that widows were on the bottom rung of society. They were. We looked at that this morning. The woman who came in, the widow who came into the temple and clinked in her two tiny little coins. What was God's heart for her? That she be cared for. That she be provided for. Remember in, in, in the Psalms where God says that he is the, the defender of the widows. He's the judge, the vindicator of the widows. James chapter 1 says, what is pure religion? What is undefiled religion? The very first thing he says is to care for the widows. To visit the widows and the fatherless in their affliction. That's what he says pure religion looks like. And yet to the world's eyes, this would have been seen as caring for those who are near the bottom of society, who are those who are left behind and forgotten far too often. Stephen's job was with them, and it was a menial task serving tables. There's one other thing. There's one other thing here. It was a very consistent job. Have you ever thought about why the, the apostles selected or told the people to select seven men? I heard one pastor say, well, this is the number of men that Jews would have to make a committee. And maybe that's true. I heard one pastor joke that this church was well on the way to, to, to being a Presbyterian church. How do you know? Because when they ran into a hard time, they created a committee. That, when they had a need, they created a committee. That's what we're doing. Well, maybe... But do you know an, another way to think about it? What was the problem? The problem was a problem with the daily distribution. How many days are there in a week? Good. We got it. How many men did they appoint over the business? Seven. You know what my best guess? Each one of them had a day. All right, Stephen. You got Monday. Every Monday, Stephen shows up at the soup kitchen. Every Monday, he serves tables. Every Monday, he's watching out for the widows. Have you ever been in a job that seems really menial in that way? Over and over again? Same thing over and over again? Moms, you know what I'm talking about. You know. I saw an absolutely terrific Babylon Bee article recently. Some of you may know the Babylon Bee, a place for some satire. This headline says, I accomplished nothing today, says mom, who spent all day nurturing infinitely precious human souls. You can laugh. It's okay. You can, you can, you can say that. That was, that was, that was a joke. Local mom Amanda Walker dejectedly told her husband she accomplished nothing today, having spent all her time taking care of infinitely precious children of God. Goes on to say, it sometimes feels like I'm not using my full potential, said Mrs. Walker, who daily lives to raise her children in wisdom and the fear of God. I feel like I'm in the same narrow rut, sighed the incredible woman entrusted to introduce the entire universe to her children. You ever feel like that? Well, here's Stephen. 
a man full of the Holy Spirit, a man who was full of faith, a man who said, yeah, I'll give myself to that job. That, this is why I'm talking about, this is what practical spirituality looks. It doesn't look like walking around a foot off the ground, never dealing with life's problems. What being full of the Holy Spirit looks like and full of faith looks like is investing yourself in very menial tasks, in very time-intensive tasks, in very disciplined tasks, and doing them excellently and with integrity and with compassion. This is what our Lord showed us. This is who Jesus was. When he was feeding the 5,000 and they had been with him for three days and didn't have something to eat, and Jesus says, you give them to eat, and then himself provides for their daily physical needs. This is the one who commands us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, developing a heavenly mindset in our prayer, only to come right down to planet earth and say, give us this day our daily bread. Our spirituality is to be practical, even when it's menial. But notice something else about Stephen, about this job that this spiritual man was confronted with. It was messy. It was messy. You say, in what way was it messy? Because what had led to the job being created? Murmuring? Fighting? Difficulty? Do you know what's the hardest part about our ministry? It's that we're dealing with people who are messy. There's a, there's a little saying we have as lawyers. Clients, what's the, wor what's the worst part of our job? Clients. What's the best part of our job in some way? Clients. We say clients, you can't live with them, you can't live without them. They make our job really messy and really hard. But do you know what? It's necessary. And do you know what's true to church? We're all messy. I can tell you the hardest thing for me, and I suspect for all of us on our elder board, is not getting up and preaching and teaching the word of God. It's dealing with the challenges of life, of everyday life of people who don't always see eye to eye, of challenges in our relationships and our families. These are all things that we're called to. Paul saw this in the book of Philippians in chapter 4 when he takes his inspired epistle to talk to two women, Euodius and Syntyche. And he says, hey ladies, can you make sure you're of the same mind? Can you make sure you're not fighting? And then do you know what he goes on to say? And he says, oh yeah, and the rest of you, help these women. Help these women. Don't quarantine them and go off into your own little world where you don't have to deal with messes. You don't have to deal with relational crises and drama. No, that's not the calling of the Christian. Help them. Help them. And in all of us, we're called to do the same kind of things that Stephen did. A man who was full of the Holy Spirit. What didn't run away from the messiness of human life and human relationships. He went right toward it and was willing to take a menial job to help solve the problem. You know, friends, he was full of faith. Do you know what that allowed him to do? It allowed to look at really menial tasks, tasks that occurred over and over and over again, and said, there's a purpose here. There's a value here. There's an eternal priority here. How do you do that? Faith. How are you going to live spiritually in your menial tasks Monday to Saturday this week? Faith. Faith. 
that there's an eternal purpose behind what you're called to do. That whether you're sitting in at your laptop punching in numbers that seem interminably boring and you can't figure out why God's called you to this job, walk by faith. Whether you're called to be a parent doing the same thing, Groundhog's Day, over and over and over again with young children, faith, full of faith. If you're called to a ministry here at Straight Gate that seems so challenging, like you're pushing a boulder up one hill only to see it roll down the other side and start pushing it up again, what do we need? Faith, full of faith. Stephen could, be, could take on a menial task because he was full of faith. What about his job being messy? He was full of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what people who are full of the Holy Spirit do? Paul said this in the book of Ephesians, there's one Spirit, so endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you know what people who are full of the Spirit do? They are like the lubricant of oil that is always keeping the gears smooth and operating smoothly. I learned a little bit more about this in a case I've been working on. There's a large power plant in a particular state, that an, one of the workers accidentally shut off the, the, the lube oil to the turbines at this power plant. And suddenly these turbines that were spinning, I believe at thousands of RPMs, completely went metal on metal. And within about a minute and a half, there was a, there was a fireball in the plant. And that went offline for months of repair at this massive power plant. Incredibly catastrophic event. And do you know, some of us sometimes as Christians, when we're not filled with the Spirit, do you know what we are? We're abrasive like that. We act in ways that are like metal on metal of a turban. Because we're not full of the Holy Spirit. We are not bringing that kind of gentleness, that kind of meekness, that kind of humility that just allows things to spin and move in the way that God intended it to. There's one spirit. So endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Do what you can. Be the person who walks into messy situations seeking to bring the lube oil of the Holy Spirit to bear on those things. His job was messy, but as a man who was filled with the Spirit, he was uniquely positioned to bring peace and unity and harmony in the relationships for Christ. There's one more thing. Not only was his job menial, not only was his job messy, but his job was major. Here's the irony. Will you notice with me in verse 7? After they had prayed and after they had laid their hands on them, what happened? And the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. You know what Satan does? Satan throws a big bomb in the middle of this church hoping that this Greek and Jewish kind of split would drive everything apart and what happens by the holy spirit men like stephen and these six other faithful spiritual men enter the picture and what happens the church keeps charging right on ahead crisis averted disaster avoided and now these men this church is continuing on it freed the church to focus on what the church is supposed to be doing living out the gospel of Christ and preaching it 
to a dying world. Now, let me close with just a couple things. First of all, we each here at Straightgate should be exceptionally grateful for the men who have been called to deacon, the men who have been called to serve. I can't tell you what a blessing our deacons have been, John and Dave and Ben Hatchet, in the way that they have jumped in to make sure that our tables are being served in particular ways, in ensuring that there is a, a, a space for us, and me in particular, to focus on the ministry of the word. And there's something we should all be grateful for. Praise God for the menial and sometimes messy tasks that our deacons take on for the cause of Christ here at Straight Gate Church. Thank you to them. But there's also something, I think, for all of us to take as well. It's easy for us to get discouraged because maybe we don't see the kind of position or place we're not the ones who are up front. We're not the ones who are in a seemingly high position. Let me encourage you, don't get discouraged. Be a person who's full of faith in wherever God has placed you. That no matter how menial, God's got you there for a purpose. And that you have a priority in his kingdom in ways that you could not even possibly imagine. And then recognize that no matter how messy your task, you're called to bring the spirit of God and the spirit of unity wherever you go, to be a person who seeks to bring fellowship together, restore communion where you are. Be a person who's full of faith. Be a person who's full of the Holy Spirit. What does a spiritual person look like? What does someone look like when they're full of the spirit, when they're full of faith? I don't know if I've given you that much clearer an idea tonight, but I hope that above all things you'll recognize something. It looks like a person who's practical, a person who's willing to take menial tasks, a person who's willing to take messy tasks, and a person who's willing, by the grace of God, to see those tasks in God's eyes become major.